Richard, thanks very much for coming on to the Aussie Wisdom Podcast today. Thanks, Chris. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. And, uh, you know, I've got a face for radio, so uh, we'll see what people think of uh, uh, this conversation. But uh, looking forward to it. Amazing. Well, <laughs> and just, just so everyone knows, I'm sitting down today with Richard Triggs of Arate Executive Search and Career Coaching. Yeah, that's right. Well pronounced. Fantastic. Yeah. And I definitely would have got that wrong had I not listened to you on the podcast. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, but, um, and as I said, he actually has his own podcast as well. I do. I've had about 110 episodes now. Yeah. Yeah, it's been good. Fantastic. And and just, just so you know as well, Richard and I are really looking to do something similar with our podcast, and that is set, have, have people sort of tell their stories and then have listeners tune in and see what's possible through other people's stories. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, fantastic. And... Um, and so what I'd like to do today is, first of all, just go through what you've done so far in your career. Right. And then a little bit down the line, also get an understanding from you, obviously, as an executive recruiter, sure. what's best for people. Okay. All right, cool. Well, uh, I'll give you the abridged career version. Okay. Uh, I was born in Canada. My uh, dad was a university professor, and so often when they want to grow in terms of their career, they move through universities around the world. So uh, my parents were English, I was born in Canada, uh, in Edmonton, it was minus 42 degrees centigrade in the winter, so that only lasted a couple of years there. Uh, we then moved to the States where my brother was born and then moved to Australia when I was four. Uh, and I lived in Sydney and then came to Brisbane uh, to do my high schooling. Um, and uh, after I finished high school, I'd been a I've been playing guitar all the way through school, and uh, I had these huge aspirations of being a rock star, and uh, and so I started a uh, bachelor of business degree, and I lasted a year. But in the meantime, was playing in bands and getting some um, uh, some good uh, feedback. So what I decided to do was uh, drop out of uni and uh, go and be a touring musician for four years. And um, uh, the highlight of my musical career was in 1990, winning the Queensland Rock Awards and beating Powderfinger. Uh, which was, and then we moved to Melbourne thinking, oh, you know, this is it, we're, we're destined for greatness. And I uh, came to a realisation that actually the life of a musician was pretty tough. Uh, and so I rang my parents and said, I want to come home. And I came back and finished my degree. It took eight years to do my undergraduate. And then um, uh, I went into sales roles and then into operational roles and then into general management roles, predominantly within uh, the facility management industry. So I worked for a division of P&O which was sold to Spotless and then that um, uh, I exited to join a national private company as their, essentially their chief operating officer. And then I went back to uni to do an executive MBA at QT. And like most people who do an MBA, I started to think, you know, what did I want to do when I grew up? Mm -hmm. uh, the company I worked for, I worked for, my boss was 50, he'd just taken equity, he wasn't going anywhere. So I went to a recruiter that I'd been a client of and said, mm -hmm. well, it's probably time for me to make a move. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, why don't you come into the recruiting industry? Right. And, uh, and that was that. And, you know, 17 years later or thereabouts, I've just turned 50. Mm -hmm. um, now, here I am in this space. Uh, I started Arache Executive on the 1st of February 2009. Mm -hmm. So we're literally days away from our 10th anniversary. Mm -hmm. Uh, right in the height of the GFC. So a, a pretty stupid time to start an executive recruitment business. But anyway, we survived and we've been through the mining boom and then the mining recession and the GFC. And it's been a really, um, uh, it's been a, a, a really challenging 10 years. But by the same token, you know, we're 10 years old, we're still here. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, our business is going extraordinarily well at the moment. Um, and uh, in 2014, I went and did a program called Key Person of Influence. Have you heard of that before? No. Okay, right, so it's run by this business called Denton. Anyway, it was, it's around how do you build your positioning as a key person of influence within your industry. Mm -hmm. And essentially, um, it's around five Ps. 
So the first P is you've got to get your pitch right. Mm -hmm. So you as a, in your role, you know, you're pitching your services, mm -hmm. is become really clear about your value proposition. Mm -hmm. The second P is that you need to publish for credibility. So you are, in a sense, publishing you know, video content. Mm -hmm. uh, what they really recommended was to write a book. So um, uh, I wrote a book called Uncover the Hidden Job Market, uh, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, uh, which has now sold and or given away well over 10,000 copies. Um, it's just about to be revised. Uh, so that was very good for my business and for people looking at me as an expert in my industry. Uh, the third P um, was you need to productize your intellectual property. Um, a big issue with professional services firms is that you're exchanging time for money. And if you um, continue to do that, you're really limited in terms of what you can do. So it's thinking about how do I productize my IP in order to get greater scale or greater profitability or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. The fourth P is you have to develop partnerships. Uh, and the fifth P is you have to build a profile. Um, and so I did that program and uh, it was fantastic. I really, really recommend it to people who are in the professional services industry, but any industries. And uh, so that was 2014. Uh, and I suppose as a result of that, uh, I changed the way my business operates and started to offer some different services. I um, started my podcast, which is now 110 episodes. Um, I started a couple of LinkedIn groups, the CEO Incubator and Brisbane Professionals, which have been very successful. Um, and I'm a very active member of the Brisbane Club and I'm ambassador there. I'm the convener of the Not for Profit Leaders Special Interest Group. And all of these things, um, uh, as well as regularly producing good content, which is published predominantly on LinkedIn, um, has enabled me to really build profile. So um, in many respects, Arate Executive is punching above our weight in that we are competing with much larger and uh, more substantive executive search firms, but um, I think the clients that I work with enjoy the fact that they're dealing with me as the owner, we're local, um, we're pricing ourselves um, you know, very competitively, and so um, you know, it's good, you know, we're getting good work, I'm really enjoying it. One of the great things about my business is that um, as I get older, my contacts get older, and they move into more senior roles, and so basically, as long as I don't screw up, as, you know, as long as I continue to deliver what I promise, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it's a very, it's looking like a very bright future. So um, yeah, so it's good. So that's where I am now. Small business, uh, based in Brisbane, operating nationally, predominantly recruiting senior executive roles, paying salaries above 150,000. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm currently working on two CEO roles uh, for two different organisations. Um, and, uh, and just having fun, mm. that's me. And so if someone were to go down that path and look to become a recruiter, mm. where would be the best place to start? Mm. You see, the recruitment industry's got a very bad reputation. Mm. Uh, they, um, the larger recruitment firms in particular, often will bring in young people as recruiters. They'll blue sky them in terms of, oh, come into the recruiting industry, you'll make so much money and you'll change people's lives and it's fantastic. And, uh, and then people come in and they realize that it, you know, probably a lot like your space, it's very much a sales role. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, the recruiting industry's got a very high churn rate. Mm. Um, I think the stat was something like 80 to 90% of people who come into the recruiting industry leave within two years, never to come back. Right. Um, the other issue with the recruiting industry is unlike the majority of professional services organisations, they will work on what we call a contingent basis. So an organisation will say to them, um, we've got a vacancy, uh, we're going to get five different recruitment companies to um, present candidates and whoever presents the best candidate wins and gets paid and everybody else works for free. Mm. And the uh, analogy I use is, you know, if you went to a lawyer and said, look, I've just murdered somebody, um, I'm going to engage five lawyers and whoever gets me the lowest sentence I'll pay mm. and the rest will work for free, they'll mm. just tell you to get lost. If you went to an architectural practice and said, I want five different architects to design my home, 
which one I like at the end and build, I'll pay them and the rest work for free, the architects would say get lost. But in the recruiting industry, the recruiters go, oh sure, that sounds fantastic. Um, and so as a result, uh, uh, they don't service the client because they know in the majority of instances they won't get paid. Right. They don't service the candidate because they know in the majority of instances they won't place that candidate to make any money. Mm. And so um, employers look at recruiters as an, uh, what I call, uh, I forgot the term now, but um, uh, a regrettable spend. They don't go, wow, we just employed a new CFO and we paid a recruiter $50,000. Wasn't that awesome? Mm. They go, oh, that was a lot of money for, for not much. So uh, the recruiting industry is going through massive change. LinkedIn is allowing organisations direct access to talent. Mm. Um, as a result, recruitment firms need to change their value proposition in order to remain successful. But a lot of the recruitment businesses are just saying, are we going to continue business as usual and pray that you know the world gets better again? Um, so I suppose uh, what I would say is that if you are a person who is attracted to the recruiting industry, is to understand it is very much a sales role. And in the vast majority of organisations, they manage that through very stringent KPIs. So they will say, okay, come on board and we expect you to make 50 telephone marketing calls a week and have 10 meetings and pick up two jobs and bill X amount per month and so on. Um, that is what it's like, mm. which I don't mind. I mean, mm. I like it, you know, mm. because I'm a salesperson at heart mm. and, uh, you know, I've thrived in that environment. But if you're an accountant who says, oh, I'm a bit over being an accountant, I might become an accountant recruiter or an engineer, mm -hmm. I might become an engineering recruiter or a lawyer or whatever, um, you need to really uh, be um, intelligent about why you're attracted to doing that role. And the challenge is a lot of recruitment companies won't actually tell you that through the recruitment process. Right. Uh, they'll gloss over it. A little bit like plumbers have the worst pipes, recruiters are the worst at recruiting for themselves. Um, so it's a, it's a it's a, a great industry and it can be extremely rewarding and uh, it can be very lucrative if you're good at it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but understanding sales is the absolute um, core element of the role yeah. uh, and you need to enjoy it and be good at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you find that people that you work with in Australia and in Brisbane are comfortable selling themselves? In the recruitment space or in general? In, or I guess start in the recruitment space and then move right. to general. Uh, are they good at selling themselves? I, I think that, uh, you know, Australians um, have this idea that if I, you know, blow my own trumpet, you know, I'm a bit of a wanker. Yep. Um, and, uh, and so they're reticent to do that as compared to perhaps the US where, yeah. you know, everybody is shouting from the, you know, the mountains, I'm awesome. Yeah. Uh, so that is definitely, um, uh, you know, a challenge to get over. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in terms of recruitment, uh, from a sales point of view, it's really understanding what the client needs yeah. and being able to offer them quality advice and deliver them excellent outcomes. Yeah. It's not so much about can you sell yourself, it's about you know, um, can you develop a good rapport that turns into a good relationship where they trust you to do the work well? Uh, I think if you, if you talk more broadly, um, you know, my book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, is really, um, I, I suppose the underlying principle of that is that the vast majority of quality vacancies never get to the open market. Okay. They're never advertised, they never get to a recruiter. Organisations are, uh, hiring reactively quality people and also they are going through their own networks and their own you know communities to find the people that they need mm -hmm. so if uh, historically you were looking for a new job and you went okay cool I'm going to sit back and look at seek every day and I'm going to apply for the roles on seek um, you're missing out on a massive percentage of the actual real vacancies there so what I'm um, educating people about is what you need to do is to identify your employers of choice. 
get in front of them before they know that they need you so that when the vacancy becomes available, you're the logical first choice. Mm -hmm. And that requires the person, the candidate, to actually be proactive in reaching out to those employees of choice and saying, hey, can I come and have a meeting with you? And even though I've, you know, as I said, sold or given away over 10,000 copies of my book, I would suggest that 95 plus percent of people who read it never do it because they're too scared to sell themselves. Right. You know, what if I ring Chris and he doesn't want to meet with me? Mm. Well, that's okay because, you know, he's one of 20, 40, 100 people to call. Mm. You know, um, uh, what if Chris, you know, I'm uh, infringing on Chris's time. You know, Chris is a busy guy. Why would he want to talk to me? Um, it's rubbish, you know. Uh, organisations, senior leaders want to hire talent. Yes. They can't hire you unless they know who you are. Yes. Uh, they can only know who you are if you get in front of them and you can sell, you know, your value proposition as an employer. Mm. Uh, but so many people are just too scared to pick up the phone. Mm. And I don't know. I imagine in your role, mm. you just got to put on your big boy pants. Mm. You know, and pick up the phone, don't you? Yeah, exactly. So um, that was something that took me a long time right. to get used to, though. Yeah, for I, sure. I went from being in a sort of more like a professional services role where I was paid to become the smart guy. Yeah. And then when I moved into sales, and mm -hmm. it was in Canada, actually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. As I said earlier, I was born in Canada, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was over in Toronto. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, I struggle with the idea of cold calling or yeah. like it, or door knocking or doing anything mm. to be direct outrage. I wasn't used to it. Mm. And it took me a while to realize that actually it was a skill that I would become good at, yeah. but it needed to be drilled into me yeah. and I needed to buy into the fact that it, I needed to do it in the first place mm. and two, it worked. Mm. And three, it was a good use of my time. Sure. Yeah. So it was a quite a long process and yeah. I, I actually there was one book that I found helped me a lot and it was written by Dan Pink and it's okay. written to sell as human okay uh, and that one really just got me clear on the fact that in our everyday lives as parents or friends mm -hmm. or employees we're not, we may not call ourselves salespeople, mm -hmm. but we're having to influence and get people over the line to get things done. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know, if you're a, uh, a surgeon and somebody comes to see you and you need to convince them to have an operation, mm. you're selling that. You yeah. know, if you are an engineer in an organization and you want some changes made, yes. you need to influence your boss, yes. you, you're selling. You know, everybody is selling all the time. Um, so I absolutely agree with that. But, but I think one of the interesting things um, uh, I learned was, and I can't recall where I learned it from, but is this idea of um, you need to touch somebody at least six times um, in order to start a quality sales process. Right. And another idea, which is called permission marketing, which is basically you're asking people's permission to call them, right? And, and one of the great things about LinkedIn is that it's very easy now to identify, you know, who those people are and how to get in front of them. So, for example, if one of your employees of choice, you know, is Morgan's, mm -hmm. and you can go onto the Morgan's website and look at the executive leadership team, mm -hmm. you can identify, well, who would I most likely report through to? Mm -hmm. And then you can go onto LinkedIn, and 99 times out of 100 now, they'll have a LinkedIn profile, you can send them a connection request. Mm. Um, and then once they connect with you, um, uh, you've, you've started a relationship. Um, and so, again, I talk about it in my book. You know, for me as a salesperson, selling recruitment or a candidate is the idea of, okay, let's say that I'm wanting to sell something to you. Um, so what I do is I send you an email, hey Chris, I'm gonna give you a call to have a chat about blah, 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 mm -hmm. touch number one. Then I ring up, hi, can I speak to Chris? I'm not ringing reception and saying, have you got any vacancies? Mm -hmm. You know, um, can I speak to Chris? Um, and then if I leave a message for you, that's a second touch. Mm -hmm. um, 
If I ring again, that's a third touch. If I send an email saying, look, Chris, I've tried to call you a couple of times, obviously you're really busy, I'll try again in a month, that's a fourth touch. Mm -hmm. In a month's time, I ring again, that's a fifth touch, let's say you don't talk to me again, mm -hmm. because uh, you're a busy dude. Uh, that's another touch. And then I send another email, hey, Chris, look, I've just rung for you again, you know, I'll give you a try in another month. And in a month's time, I ring again. Mm -hmm. By this time, you're thinking far out, you know, if I don't meet with this dude, he's just gonna drive me crazy forever. Plus, I've shown that I've been assertive without being, you know, um, aggressive about it. Yeah. Um, and also, I've said I'm going to ring in a month, and then I ring in a month. Yeah. And then I'm going to ring in a month, and I ring in a month. And yeah. you know, so I'm showing that I'm proactive, that I'm consistent, that I follow through on you know the commitments I make, and you meet with me. Okay. Now, if I had rung you the first time and said, "Hey, Chris, can I have a meeting?" You go, "Yeah, sure." You probably say that to everybody, right? right? Okay, so that it's not necessarily as good mm. as if I've you know, been through this process of starting to build this relationship with you. By the time I do meet with you, you've got a consideration about what I'm all about. Yeah. And the other thing is that you can, with your LinkedIn profile, ensure that um, it's called the zero moment of truth in marketing. Um, if you want to buy a new car, before you even go to the car yard, you're on the website, you're looking at the car, you're reading the reviews, you're watching the demos and so on and so forth. You've formed an opinion about whether you like that car before you even go there. Mm. It's the same thing with LinkedIn, mm. you know, is that every single person I meet with now, a client, a candidate, a potential recruiter, whatever it is, I always look at their LinkedIn profile first. Mm. Is, do, do you do the same? Yeah. Right, so if you've got a crap LinkedIn profile, mm. which most people have, mm. it's not a great you know, brochure for you. Mm. If you have a really good LinkedIn profile that is um, of a high quality, it really you know, presents your skills and your unique selling proposition and so on, um, then when somebody looks at it, they'll go, hey, this guy looks you know, really legitimate. Mm -hmm. They're much more likely to want to meet with you. So going back to your point about, you know, back in the good old days of cold calling, I mean, that was pretty crap, wasn't mm -hmm. it? You know, mm -hmm. bring 50 people out of the phone book or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Now you can look at their LinkedIn profile. If you're a bit sneaky, you can try and look at their Facebook. Mm -hmm. You can learn about them before you call them. You can build a relationship on email. Mm -hmm. um, it's much, much easier. Mm. Don't you think? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and I actually had a friend today, I saw on his LinkedIn profile that he's got a new job. Right. And I spoke with him at the end of last year and things sort of hadn't worked out with his employer mm -hmm. and he was made redundant. Right. And it was all a bit awkward, but he sort of thought everything will play out okay. And yeah. I asked him, mate, are you sort of, how are you feeling about the situation? And he went, this is exactly the company that I wanted to work for when I graduated from university. Right. And what stands out to me about my mate Desi is that he did the emailing. He reached out to the people that he wanted to work with. Right. And it worked. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily know that other people were doing that. Right. But I knew that he definitely was. He was hungry. He was doing the work. And it's worked for him. Yeah. So I'm really excited yeah. to see that that's how it's played out. Right. Well, so, so yeah. You know, I... I run these workshops called, uh, they used to be called Always Stand Out, now they're called a Career Accelerator Workshop. Mm -hmm. And uh, typically we get about 50 people in the room. And uh, I say, okay, how many of you are in leadership roles? Right. Every hand goes up, because they're the kind of people I deal with. Mm -hmm. Okay, if a high quality candidate reached out to you and asked you for a meeting, and you looked at their LinkedIn profile, and you mm -hmm. could see that they were quality and it was relevant, mm -hmm. would you meet with them? Every hand goes up. Mm. Like, well, why aren't you doing that? And people aren't doing it, you know? And then, so do you mean people aren't reaching out to them or people aren't saying they'll meet with the person? They're, they're not reaching out. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, I uh, recently met with the CEO and he said, oh, Richard, I read your book a few years ago and it was awesome. And, you know, uh, and I said to him, how are you going in terms of reaching out to your employee of choice? I'm not doing it, right? I said, okay, you're a CEO and he's a CEO of a substantive private Brisbane-based organisation. Right. In your role as CEO, how often are high-quality people reaching out to you asking for a meeting? Never. And I said, if they did, would you meet with them? Yes. Mm. So why aren't you doing it? Mm. Oh, oh, you know, um, the dog ate my homework, the tree fell on the house, whatever it is. Yeah. All these excuses for why, fundamentally, 
they're too scared. Yeah, you know, I've met recently with a, a human resource director of a mining organisation, exactly the same, looking for a new job. How often do you people reach out to you? And she's the human resources director. And she said, very, very rarely. Mm. It's mental. Mm. Organisations want to hire high quality talent. Mm. They are hungry for it, regardless of the economic cycle. Yeah. In a shitty economic time, there is a greater requirement for quality people. So if you believe that you are quality, and if you don't, then what are we even talking for? Yeah. Why wouldn't you reach out to your employers and say, hey, I'm here, you know, I regard you as an employer of choice. I'd love to have a chat to you about my skill set and whether I can add value to your team. Um, why wouldn't you do that? Mm. Fundamentally, I'm either too lazy or I'm too egotistical or I'm too scared, mm. which I think is, uh, is sad. You know, so you see a lot of people in jobs that they hate mm. or underemployed mm. um, uh, who could have amazing careers in awesome organisations, but they just won't, you know, take the initiative. Mm. And in the, in the coaching programs that you run at RSA Executive, do you deal with that a lot? Yeah, well, look, you know, when I say I'm a coach, I'm not a life coach or yeah. I'm not a coach you know, how for you, how do you perform better in your job? Okay. I mean, I could do that, and I'm, I have coaching qualifications to do that, but I don't enjoy doing it. Right. Uh, I coach um, in a very, you know, one-dimensional is you're looking for a new job, let me coach you through your job search process. Okay. Um, uh, so it's only uh, in relation to um, how do you get job of choice with employer of choice as quickly as possible? Mm. But again, um, people won't. Uh, people read the book and you know have a coaching session with me, and they say, "Richard, I get it. I know it would work, but I'm not doing it." Mm. Um, so I, you know, I only want to work with people who are going to actually follow through and do the things that have to be done. Yeah. Uh, so as a result. Coaching is a very small part of what I do. Yeah, uh, I run a monthly workshop, and mm -hmm. you know, I run a, I offer a ninety-minute one-on-one session mm -hmm. uh, with people, and then I say, I've given you the tools, mm. I've given you the encouragement, mm. I've given you the responsibility. You've got to go and make it happen. It's not, you know, I'm not going to make it happen for you. Mm. Mm. And so, just obviously, you offer that book and you offer that workshop. Yeah, if people hear this. And they say this is something that I need to learn how to do. Yeah. What's the best step for them to go ahead and, and learn that? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I've just got a new website which will be launching in a few weeks. But if you go um, to arataexecutive.com.au, mm -hmm. uh, you can get a free a link to the ebook for free. Okay. Um, uh, we have a um, uh, a portal that people can register their details so that when vacancies become available that are suitable for them, they'll be made aware of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, um, I run these workshops and they'll get um, some uh, you know, marketing about uh, where my workshops are on. Um, so yeah, look, I, um, the workshop is, I think, 80 bucks. I don't, I don't do it for the money. I yeah. do it because you know, I have at least 15 people a week and say, oh, Richard, can I meet with you? I want to have a chat about my job search. Yeah. My mate Chris told me to come and meet with you. I don't have time. Yeah. So what I do is I say, once a month, I'll run a three-hour session. Yeah. You know, I, I basically do it at cost because it's mm -hmm. at the Brisbane Club and it's a beautiful meal. And, yeah. you know, um, and then, uh, you know, it's up to you. Go out, um, uh, pay some money and come along mm -hmm. and learn some stuff and then go away and implement it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then for, for the executives that you work with, mm. let's say you've, you've come out of school, you've finished university, and you're trying to work out the skill set that they, you need to build in order to be able to move through the executive development process. Yeah. Yeah, are there a couple of skills that stand out above everything else that people are looking for? Yeah, I look, um, you know, in the US, it's pretty much taken for granted that if you want to move into a senior leadership role, you've got to have an MBA. Right, right. Okay. In Australia, MBAs are uh, not highly regarded. Okay. Um, uh, people want practical, um, uh, key achievements and transferable skills. Right. So I'll come back to that in a minute. So 
Um, you know, it used to be that you were an engineer and then you moved into a leadership role and you really only had um, an engineering degree. Mm. So you're moving into a leadership role and an MBA would say, okay, well, we'll give you a bit of marketing and a bit of strategy and a mm. bit of finance and a bit of HR to give you some rounded out business skills. Or, you know, um, uh, you've done a non-business degree, you're moving into a leadership role within a business you go and do an MBA. But what's happened is that the MBA schools are now taking young people who've got no practical business experience, mm -hmm. younger people, um, who do their degree and then they go directly into an MBA. Mm -hmm. Or they do a business degree and then they do an MBA. But I mean, the reality is it's there's not much difference. It's um, So I've done an executive MBA and I'm very pleased that I did and I go and talk to the MBA schools, their students about how to get a job, and people always say, oh, what's my MBA worth in the market? And I say, it's not really worth anything. Yeah. You know, It's nice to have, I don't think it's a bad thing to do, but if you think that it's a ticket to a bigger, better, sexier job, you know, think again. Um, from a qualification point of view, my advice is that if you are a finance person, you want to get finance qualifications. Um, you know, go and do postgraduate qualifications that give you a more narrow but much deeper skill set. You know, if it's in HR or marketing or whatever it might be. But you know, nothing beats doing your job really, really well. Um, one of the challenges, though, is that a lot of people they don't really know. How do I, they don't know well, what does a good job look like? Okay. You know, they get given a position description which is pretty, you know, um, loose. You know, you're going to do your job and do it well and do it safely. And, um, but understanding, you know, what are the actual quantifiable key deliverables of my role? Um, so sitting down with the boss and saying, if we were having my performance review in 12 months' time, what would I have needed to do in that year for you to say, Richard, fantastic job, kicked every goal, 100%, you're awesome. Mm. And actually get an understanding of, well, what does success really look like? Yeah. Um, and then the next part of it is, uh, people in their jobs become very siloed. You know, they, they go to work, they work in their office or whatever it might be. They don't really get out and build networks. Um, uh, and again, coming back to the hidden job market, networks are very important, you know, mm -hmm. to get access to these opportunities. So we were talking before we started, you know, about your um, monthly sessions, you mm -hmm. know, uh, so going along to something like that and meeting people outside your industry mm -hmm. uh, and hearing new thinking that you can potentially bring back into your workplace, bring yeah. back into your role is very, very important. Yeah. You know, I'm a miner. I, work in a mining company, I go to mining conferences where mining people talk about mining mm. is fine, but you know, where are you getting that creative input? But there's lots and lots of ways to do that. Mm. The other thing I think is very important is to be very good at um, articulating. Um, and probably the best thing that I ever did when I was younger is do the Toastmasters, mm. um, become a competent Toastmaster. Have you done that? I've done part of it. Part of it, yeah. right. Yeah. So you go on to Toastmasters and over whatever period you know suits you, whether it's a year or 10 years or never, yeah. um, you have to give 10 talks. Mm. And each talk you build on your skill set. Yeah. And they have this other thing called table topics where they'll throw a topic out. They'll say, okay, yesterday I went to the beach and Richard, and you've got to get up and talk about that off the spot. Yeah. That is an incredible skill to have, yeah. you know. Um, uh, and I don't hear much about Toastmasters anymore. But uh, it is, I would regard my CTM, Competent Toastmasters experience, as probably as valuable, if not more valuable, than my undergraduate degree. So, um, and then, you know, you, so you need to find a good group and you need to commit to it and you're already busy and you might have a family life and blah, 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 and, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you want to succeed, you've got to, you know, it, it's not an easy road. Yeah. Uh, there's no free ticket to being a CEO. Yeah. I think the, the thing that I really liked about Toastmasters, and again, I did this over in Canada, was that you're in with a group that you see every week or however often you meet. Yep. And they'll give you feedback, and it will be direct feedback. Yeah. And you benefit from that. Sure. But you also know that everyone's looking out for one another, mm. and they're not just being... 
things. Yeah. So I found that that was really good because you don't realise some of the things that you're doing. Yep. Or when you hear yourself, let's say, on a podcast like, mm. like today, or when you see yourself on video, you, you then can see the things that you've been doing. Yeah. Yep. That you've been there for long. Definitely. Yeah, I'd certainly found Toastmasters was helpful for that. Mm. Um, it's just that I didn't stay at the firm long enough right. for me to finish the Toastmasters right. qualification. One of the things I found in terms of doing my podcast is in a normal conversation, you know, we do a lot of reflective listening. Yeah. So I'll go, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, cool. Well, you know, and we, you, you're talking and I'm interjecting, but in a podcast, that actually isn't good. You know, so what I've had to learn, and I'm not still not very good at it, is shutting up. And instead of doing the reflective listening to get people to talk more, uh, is doing it, you know, more from a gestures point of view. Because if people listen to the podcast and they hear Richard every five seconds going, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, cool, um, it's really distracting. Uh, so it's a very different sort of um, medium, uh, whether you're doing video or podcasts or um uh, I haven't really got into the video space yet, uh, but I mean, you know, it's, it, it's so easy now. The technology yeah. is so amazing. Um, but uh, you certainly, people will tell you, you know, Richard, I listen to the podcast. You've got to stop doing that or whatever it is. You yeah, know, people will be very direct. Yeah, you'd. Um, well, actually, I was chatting with a friend last night, and I said, you, she's done quite a lot of interviewing. Okay. She said exactly what you said. Right. Try not to say, try not to say yes, okay, mm. doing all those things mm. as you're going through it because mm. it just won't work on a podcast. But mm. obviously, in a normal conversation, that works well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, um, so when you when you became involved with the, is it called the CEO Incubator? Yep. So what was it, what was it that you've really been able to offer as a partner as being the CEO of that? What, why? What's the... Well, um, ever since I uh, started Arata Executive, I realised that my true value was my community. Okay. Um, you know, I have 30,000 LinkedIn connections. Yeah, I uh, that. Yeah, yeah. I, and in fact, I've got to cull them because 30,000 is the maximum. So if somebody sends me a LinkedIn request, connection request at the moment, I can't accept it because I'm full. Uh, so I need to cut out, you know... Uh, a lot of people that I probably accepted a long time ago, but don't, you know, isn't um, valuable anymore. Uh, so anyway, so, um, and the idea is that this community, which um, CEO Incubator is uh, aspiring CEOs, or more aspiring C-suite executives, so CEO, CFO, COO, etc., yeah. aspiring, or people who are in those roles that want to, you know, um, move into new roles or continue to develop their C-suite career mm -hmm. or people who are moving from a C-suite career to a portfolio career, which means they're joining boards, right? right. So there's a huge community of those people. And, and what do those people want? You know, um, coming back to what we've already talked about, they want ongoing professional development, mm -hmm. but they're probably too far in their career that they've either done an MBA or it wouldn't be that relevant to them anymore. So they want ongoing professional development, which is unique and interesting, um, number one. Two, they want to network with their peers outside of industry. So they want the opportunity to get access to people, you know, for their own enjoyment, um, as well as for potential, you know, career progression opportunities. Um, and three, they want access to, you know, the best quality jobs. So um, that was the underlying principle. So I built a, um, uh, a group on LinkedIn called CEO Incubator, which is at about 3,500 members now. Um, and uh, what LinkedIn have done now, because LinkedIn were purchased by Microsoft, right? Okay. So whereas a lot of stuff on LinkedIn used to be free, mm -hmm. now you, know, you need to pay money for it. The reason I have 30,000 LinkedIn connections is because you can see three degrees of separation. So if I'm connected to you, I can see your connections, which are second degree. I can see their connections, which is third degree. In the normal LinkedIn, you only can do that. So when I started Arata Executive, I realized if I had as many LinkedIn connections as possible, what do I need a database for? Right. You know, they're all on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, and that gave me a huge competitive advantage um, because 
I was a very early adopter of that. Then LinkedIn cottoned onto that and they said, okay, well, what we're going to do is create a LinkedIn recruiter licence now, which is about $15,000 a year. Okay. I've got two of them. Um, and, uh, and so if you pay that money, you can see everybody on LinkedIn. So that oh. value proposition was immediately taken away. Yeah. They've also got a product on LinkedIn called Sales Navigator. Have you yes, seen that? Sales, seen yeah, that yeah, it's very yeah. good. So, right. So, in the groups, there was a lot of power in terms of being able to communicate into the groups. They've now closed that out, so you can't do that anymore. So, it's a very timely conversation because what we're having to do now is to migrate those communities from LinkedIn to Facebook. Mm. Um, and again, Facebook people have always had this distinction between. Facebook's for fun, LinkedIn's for business. Yeah. It's not like that anymore, right. you know. And you can join groups on Facebook without connecting with people. Yes. So they can't see the picture of your cat and your holidays and so on. Yeah. Um, but that's an education process. Mm -hmm. But what we're now doing um, is we're going to build a completely separate platform, um, uh, which it won't be called the CEO Incubator, but it will enable those things to be achieved which the LinkedIn community was originally set up to do. And if we come back to the, K, the you know, the KPI stuff, uh, the reality is that, you know, I can only deliver so many recruitment assignments. Um, uh, so I'm limited in terms of how I can grow my business uh, unless I employ further people or, you know, I broaden my recruitment offering or whatever it might be. Um, but what I can do is I can... Uh, move into um, this space of education and community and networks and some really innovative thinking around some great stuff. Um, and if that turns into a subscription model uh, where, let's say, there's 10,000 people um, who are paying $10 a month uh, or $100 a month, um, suddenly that gets pretty exciting. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to... Um, doing a lot more of work in that space because um, C-suite executives, they only need recruitment when they need recruitment. Yes. So if I ring a CEO and say, hey, Fred, how are you going? It's been a while since we've been speaking. You know, what's happening in your world? Got any vacancies? Mm. And she says, no, I don't have any vacancies. Well, there's nothing else that I can offer her, right? Um, I'm a, uh, a one-trick pony, mm. Okay. But the reality is that, that C-level executive at different times will have different needs for all kinds of things. Yeah. So um, it's thinking about how do I deliver greater value to people so that um, they see this as a resource to support them in terms of achieving their full um, potential, which is what Arate means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, I've had a you know, it's been a, it's been a lot of change. Has been, uh, you know, some very challenging times, but I'm, I think this year is going to be fantastic. Um, the market's great. There's a lot of optimism out there. People are feeling, you know, really positive. Um, the work that I'm doing in terms of building Arate's brand and the Richard Trick's brand, you know, is getting great momentum. The fact that I've been invited to do this with you is evidence of that. So yeah, so uh, I think 2019 is going to be great. Fantastic. Yeah. And then just on that, obviously we've spoken about what it's like to be in a job and go looking for better jobs yeah. and moving up the ranks through the C-suite. Yeah. Obviously, you run your own business. Yeah. How do you feel that's different compared to executive? What What are the skills that you have as a business owner with this ideation and mm -hmm. making things happen? Like, mm. What is it that you need as a business owner that may not ne be necessary as a... Mm. It's completely different. Yeah. Um, uh, it may not be as completely different as, you know, I'm looking at the window as Cromwell. You know, if yeah. I was the CEO of Cromwell or the managing director of Cromwell, then that, you know, that's one thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a mental blank as to his name. But, um, you know, when you're running a small business, uh, uh, you know, firstly, I didn't start my business because I wanted to be a business owner. I started my business because I was just sick and tired of reporting into people who were making decisions that I didn't agree with. Right. You know, so, um, uh, and in hindsight, looking back at it, um, it's not that they were necessarily making poor decisions. It's just that, the, you know, I was 
conflicted with those decisions. And so, uh, you know, I started my business as a, you know, reaction to that. Um, uh, and then, you, you know, there's this constant stress of uh, cash flow and, uh, you know, having uh, creative ideas, but needing to make sure that you stick with your core business to have the money coming through to support that. Um, by nature, I'm a person who likes to chase the shiny new toy. But when I chase the shiny new toy, my core business executive search falls away. And all of a sudden, I go, oh, shit, I got no money. So uh, 10 years in, I've had to come to a realization that I need to put my energy into you know, my core business in order to be financially successful. Um, it's very different employing people as an owner to managing people in a corporate environment. I was an excellent manager. You know, uh, I would have no difficulty in performance managing people, in exiting people if they weren't performing, uh, you know, encouraging and supporting high performers within that environment. But in my environment, when somebody is not doing the, the things that they've been employed to do, and as a result, I can't feed my kids. You know, suddenly it's a very different, you know, scenario. Um, and I can tell you, I've recruited so, I've kissed so many frogs. <laughs> yeah. You know, you employ somebody who really, you know, um, sells themselves amazingly. You're extremely clear about the expectations and they come into the business and they don't do it. Yeah. Um, as an owner, that's just, uh, it's heartbreaking. Um so, you know, at, at our largest, we were 14 people. Uh, you know, we're a much smaller business now. And quite honestly, I would rather keep it lean and profitable than grow for its own sake. Um, yeah. I have a business coach named David Dugan who's very, very good. I did the KPI program, so I'm educating myself in the space of entrepreneurial small business owner which again is very different to developing yourself as you know, um, mid to senior level executive within a corporate environment. Mm. I look at the CEOs that I'm friends with and what they do for their money and I go, man, there's no way I could do that. Mm. I, I could not manage a thousand people. I can't even manage five right. <laughs> anymore. Um, so yeah, I, you know, uh, there's a lot of, um, joy that comes from being a business owner, but there's a lot of uh, stress and uh, there's been many times in 10 years that I thought, oh, it'd be nice to just go back to being an employee, um, but uh, I think I'm now unemployable. Right. Yeah. Because you just do things your own way. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's fair enough. And do you think when people come and see you, is it often the case that they say, look, Richard, having a look at these C-suite positions and that looks really good, but I'm also thinking about starting my own business. Or does that not often come up? Uh, I, I'd say less. People might come to me and say, look, Richard, I'm, I'm looking you know, at C-level roles, but I might also want to be in a portfolio career and sit on a yes. number of boards. Okay. Um, they're more the people that I'm dealing with, you know. Uh, um, then people who say, look, I could continue my corporate career or I could start my own small business. Um, I think that, you know, the reality is that, you know, large um, uh, corporates, particularly having, you know, massive changes in technology and offshoring, um, you know, lower value tasks and those kind of things is meaning that those corporate jobs are contracting. And as a result of that, people are thinking, they're either being, you know, um, forced out into um, ownership because of redundancy, or they're they're actually making a choice to move into that space. And I think that technology is enabling people. Uh, so, for example, I have a friend of mine who worked for Rio Tinto in a very very senior role, took a redundancy last year, did some education about how to build an Amazon um, retail platform. Uh, and is building a business on our Amazon. You're selling yoga equipment, you know, and uh, loves it. Works from home. Uh, uh, you know, really enjoys having the flexibility. And you know, whilst they're not working, earning the income, they were at Rio. 
they look back at that time of and go, God, that was so stressful and um, and this is just so much easier. So, you know, that is definitely happening. Um, but, you know, the reality is if you are a good quality senior executive and you can earn excellent money, um, my I would encourage people to continue to do that and to use that income to fund other things. You know, walking away from two, three, four hundred thousand dollars um, to move into a board space or move into a small business space, so uh, it can be very hard and take a long time to replicate that kind of income. Uh, so unless you are motivated by things other than money, um, you know staying in the career path of being a C-level or a senior executive can often be the better choice. Mm. Mm. That's good. And let's say there's someone watching this who is in high school, right, looking at options for university, looks at these people running businesses or on boards running businesses as, as the pinnacle of what they'd like to achieve. Right. Does it matter if they go to UQ or QUT? What should they study? Like, what does it have to be business law? Like, what? What's well, it uh, look, you know, I, I've got um, uh, sort of a bit of a different view uh, in that. I mean, the reality is that uh, how old are you? Thirty-three. Thirty-three, right? Yeah. So the reality is that as long as you look after yourself, you will probably live um, to be a hundred. You know, uh, potentially, you know, with all of the medical technology and so on, you could live a lot longer. And if you're living to be 100, you know, you're probably going to work until you're 80. Mm. Hopefully out of desire rather than necessity, right? Yes. 80 is a long time, you know. Uh, it used to be that the average life expectancy of a white man in Australia was about 50. You know, not that long ago, only in 1900, 50, 55, something like that. Mm. So go to school, pick a career, get a qualification, get married, bang out some kids, die, right? Okay, it's not like that anymore, you know. So I think that, um, but the whole education system is still like that. Okay. You know, they're still saying, I mean, my son's going to high school in a year, you know, saying, okay, well, you've got to work really hard at high school and then if we go and pick the right qualification, you've got to go and do that. It's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people will have so many changes in their career and they'll do things that haven't even been invented yet. You know, you think about, um, you know, being a social media specialist or whatever, 10 years ago there wasn't even social media. So um, so I think this whole thing about, well, should I go to QUT or UQ? Should I do business or law? It's just crap, you mm-hmm. know. Um, uh, I would say do what you love and have fun. You know, um, uh, there's there's societal pressure to do those things that's largely removed now. Mm. You know, all of this, you know, um, uh, gender equality and racial equality and the fact that women, you know, um, are able to have kids and come back into the workplace and it's becoming, it's going to become a much more fluid environment. So, um, yeah, I think fundamentally it doesn't make any difference. But if you are at... 16, 17, and you're saying, I want to be the CEO of BHP, um, go and do a mining qualification for sure, you yeah. know. Um, but if you're 16, 17 and going, shit, I don't know what I want to do with my life, mm. well, good. Um, take some time. Take a gap year. You know, go and join the army. Go and be a policeman, whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, I wish in hindsight, you know, that when I was in that space, you know, I'd made some different choices and gone and enjoyed doing some different things. Um, And uh, I think it's going to be an amazing place for people to to grow up. I think that as you come through, and even me, you know, um, uh, there's so much greater opportunity and and, um, the world is largely a much safer and, you know, there's never been a better time to be alive. Um, Just have fun. And just on that, do you did you have mentors throughout your life, or did you sort of work out a lot of things on your own? Uh, did I have mentors? Uh, I definitely have mentors now. Yeah. I would say when I was earlier in my career, you know, I was lucky to have an excellent boss, okay. a guy named Peter King, who's the CEO of 
Benares. When I worked in the facility management industry, he was my boss uh, from when I was about 24. And uh, he was a fantastic mentor, you know, and uh, uh, I worked very hard and I achieved great results. And, you know, he was extraordinarily supportive and he promoted me into, you know, more and more senior roles, <clears throat> uh, which developed me. Um, and so I would say, in most instances, as a younger professional, your best mentor is probably your boss. Wow. Now, if your boss is a complete dickhead, you know, a complete narcissist, mm -hmm. then you probably need to go and get a different boss, right. right? You don't have a lot of time to be out there and finding mentors and taking time out of your job to go and meet with mentors and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I was on a panel discussion um, at AIM, Australian Institute of Management, a while ago, around personal brand and for younger professionals. And these people were saying, you know, should I have Instagram or should I have this or should I write a book or should I It's like, no, just do your job. You know, the, the best personal brand you can get is by under-promising and over-delivering in your job. You know, if you do that consistently, the opportunities will come and your brand will develop as a result yeah. because people will see you as, you know, an achiever. Yeah. Um, then when you move into your you know, more senior career, then that's probably the time to think about um, uh, getting some uh, either formal coaching or mentoring. Uh, I had an amazing coach named Colin Clark, who I recommend very highly, uh, and he literally changed my life. Um, since then, I've had a number of different coaches. I have a business coach now. Uh, so I think a coaching-mentoring relationship is really, really important. But if you're, again, an early career person, um, uh, don't get distracted from just doing your job. Mm. Um, that is the best uh, career accelerator that you can have mm. is to just be really, really good at what you do. I think the interesting thing that you said <clears throat> earlier is I think this is something that I definitely didn't do early in my career. And I'm not sure whether it's a normal thing that you don't necessarily do it, but you don't know that you can walk up to your boss and say, hey, exactly what is it you want me to do? Yeah. To say, this is high achievement at the end of the year. Mm. Like, can, can we just have a really clear conversation about what that would look like? Yeah. Make sure that I do that. And then, and then break it down to, well, what's six months look like? Yeah. What does three months look like? Mm. Um, and often, you know, because when I'm recruiting, I go through this process with the hiring manager. Mm. What does success like look like? They don't even know themselves. Yes. You know, um, what do they need to achieve? Well, you know, let's get really clear um, about improvement in revenue, um, you know, reduction in expenses, um, growth of team, moving into new markets, whatever it might be. Every role is unique. You know, even in your environment, you know, your peers, you still, even though you have essentially the same job description, yes. you know. You, what your role is, is has nuances which are different to the other people. So it's becoming really clear on that, making it very quantifiable. Because if your boss says, okay, well, you know, I need you to do A, B, C, D, and E, and here's a very clearly articulated what does success look like, the performance review is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Yes. You know, here it is, I've done those things, yippee. Or if I'm not on track to achieve those, having the... Um, the maturity to say to your boss, hey, I'm struggling here, you know, um, I need some support or I'm not sure what I should be doing or maybe what we decided is not actually really, you know, achievable. Um, a boss would much prefer to have that conversation mm. than get to the end and, and you just go, hmm, you know, and it's amazing how many people do that. I mean, even in my environment, you know, I've recruited business salespeople and said, okay, your, uh, my only expectation of you is 8 to 12 client meetings a week. 8 to 12 a week, 8 to 12 a week, 8 to 12 a week. Is that understood? Yep. It's in their position description. It's in their performance profile, clearly articulated through the entire recruitment process. They come to start to work for me. Two meetings, three meetings, two meetings, four meetings. Um, you know, and they don't stay. And, I mean... I'm employing a person to do a job. Your boss has you as part of their team. Um, 
to make them and the business more successful. So understand what that success looks like and being able to consistently deliver it um, is uh, not many people really do that very well. Um, and that's why businesses lose a lot of money or a lot of opportunity. Um, but then the businesses don't know how to articulate it and how to foster it either. So, you know, it is a, it's a, a two-way street. I want to let you go because I know you're a busy man. <laughs> but I just I thought I'd finish on, let's say you've been doing your job well and you've spoken with your boss and you've been really clear about what you needed to do and you get to the performance management process and you feel like you're going in pretty hot, yeah. thinking that everything will work out quite well, and then they don't look out for you on pay. How uh, do you know about right. in that conversation? Yeah, it's a difficult one uh, because... Um, uh, people will often move jobs because they want a bump in money. Yes. Okay, but um, you know there are a lot of factors. In fact, you know we have a tool that's called eleven factor, um, eleven factors around a role. Uh, um, uh, can you do the job? Uh, is there enough stretch in the job to keep you motivated, engaged? Is there growth? In the, in the role into the future. What's your hiring manager like? What's your team like? What are the tools that, that you work with like? Um, et cetera, et cetera, right? So people go, oh shit, you know, I went for my performance review and I wanted more money and they didn't give it to me. Um, if they came to me and said, okay, well, that my motivation for the new job is this. Well, I said, well, let's actually look through these. You know, I love my team. You know, I've, I've got, I'm really encouraged to do well, uh, whatever it might be suddenly money doesn't become such a factor. So I think that sort of knee-jerk reaction, I want more money, I didn't get it, I'm leaving, is not particularly intelligent because you may move into another environment with more money, but it might actually be, you know, a regrettable decision. Um, uh, but by the same token, you know, uh, organisations need to pay people appropriately. And often the new person gets paid more money, but the incumbent person doesn't get paid any more money because they're not paying a squeaky wheel. So there's nothing wrong with having the conversation saying, okay, here's the performance profile or the, you know, the measures of achievement. When I achieve that, what will my salary be? And if that's articulated up front and then they, you do achievement and they don't deliver, um, then it's an opportunity to have you know, a pretty forthright conversation about that. I've had this experience multiple times in my career and people come to me all the time, you know, where I'm doing a great job and they're, oh, Richard, you're doing a great job, so what we want to do is we want you to move into this more senior role or take on more responsibility. Okay, well, like, am I going to get a salary review? Don't worry about that, Richard. You know, we'll look after that. We've got a few things to think about and so on and so forth. But, you know, you take on the responsibility and then, you know, when it comes to salary review time and then you get to review time, no more money or not much money. Um, uh, and, you know, I've learned through my own career, uh, you know, you want the honey, you got to give me the money, right? I'm really interested in taking that role on, but before I take that on, you know, we need to talk about money. Um, and employers like people who are assertive in terms of negotiations. Um, and, you, you know, if you put it back on them, they would do exactly the same thing. Uh, but it happens so often. And I have so many aggrieved people who come to see me. You know, I was promised this, you know, when I went and was interviewed for this company, they said at the end of the year I would get equity and I get to the end of the year, no equity. Well, was it in writing? No, it wasn't in writing. If it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. So um, it's being... Um, uh, having the confidence to be able to say, this is what I'm worth in the market. If you say, look, I've just gone and met with one of your competitors and they've said that they'll give me $20,000 more money, and the employer says, oh, well, see you then. You know, you've got to be prepared to, uh, you know, um, uh, walk. So using that as a, as a threat um, is not very good. Um, uh, but if you're out there talking to competitors about moving to them for more money, um, you're going to go. Uh, so, uh, again, 
it's better to have the internal conversation. Um, you know, what is reality in terms of my future here, responsibility, remuneration, etc., rather than just going to a recruiter or going to other organisations and saying, if I join you, will you give me $20,000 more money? Um, yeah. And just finally, based on all, all you've sort of walked us through today, um, are there any books or resources which have been really helpful to you that you could recommend? Well, apart from your own. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, right. check that out, yeah. Books or resources. Uh, look, I, I'm, uh, uh, I love to read, um, and you know, I don't read a lot of business books anymore because okay. uh, I'm kind of a bit over it. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, coming back, I wasn't familiar with the sales book that you, what was the one? Yeah, selling to, is human. To is sell obviously. is human. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with that. But I, I think that, you know, um, developing your skills as a salesperson, regardless of what role you're in, is very important. Yeah. Um, I think as a leader, learning how to have tough conversations mm -hmm. is very important. And uh, uh, there's, I've read some, you know, good books around that. Um, uh yeah, look, it's very unique to the individual. You know, I, my view now about business is if I'm happy and helpful, the universe will look after me. Okay. So um, uh, I am using my business coach and mentors in terms of helping me to develop my strategy for the business. Mm -hmm. But largely, I think if you're in, if you just understand what success looks like and you just work towards that, you, you're there. And then you pick books, um, you know, that attract you. Yeah. There's a lot of crap out there. Yeah, you know. absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, so there's nothing that I would, you know, would jump off the shelf at me and say, you yeah. must read this. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah, Ogmandino, The Greatest Salesman, uh, and then another great one called The One Minute Salesperson. Have okay. you heard of that? No. And then there's another great book called The One Minute Manager. These are yes. old books. Yeah. Uh, and then there's another great book called Who Moved My Cheese, yes. which is about dealing with it. You know, so um, they're metaphors about, you know, business life, but, uh, but they're, they're great lessons.